Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, as Israel moves its artillery into level Hamas, a new migrant crisis is brewing. Their Arab neighbours won't take them. So with 2.1 million Gazans falling under every European Court of Human Rights definition of refugee, is Europe's always fractious migration politics about to fully fall off its perch? And while we're on the subject, how is the war hotting up? After some humming and hawing about whether the IDF ground forces are ready to send the Hummers in, we ask whether the Israelis and their allies are getting cold feet, or is this the calm before a violent desert storm? Off the naughty step, Donald Tusk has led a liberal anti-law and justice coalition to power in Poland, promising to put them back onto the path of being good European citizens. So what now for Europe's internal axis of evil? But first... After Gaza, the deluge. Everyone's focused on the situation in Israel and in the Gaza Strip in particular at the moment. No no great surprise there, as there seems to be a war of sorts kicking off. But I suppose it's quite surprising that until now, we haven't really seen a discussion of the potential impact it could have on migration flows. Now, I'm not saying that every time a war starts, everyone should immediately start getting obsessed with migration flows. We've just had a war under two years ago in Ukraine, and people didn't immediately perk their ears up and start thinking about migration flows. Now, the migration flows from Ukraine have been disruptive in some places, notably in Ireland, but in most places, they haven't been that bad. Poland, they have disrupted a little bit, not quite as bad as they have in Ireland. But I think it was quite reasonable for people not to think too much about the migration flows from Ukraine. That might change, of course, if Ukraine ends up joining the European Union. But it's very surprising that that people didn't immediately cotton on to the migrationist aspect in the Gaza Strip. And the reason I say that is because, for a few reasons, the first issue is the physical geographical reality of the place. Um, We talked about it, obviously, on the show last week. It's a highly contained area of people. It's something like 350,000 square kilometers, something around that. And it's got uh, 2.1 million people packed in. I think last week you said it was quite similar to Hong Kong, in a sense. People live on top of each other. There's no very large high rises, but everyone lives in multi-story buildings. Living conditions aren't great. It's a very cramped place. And of course, the Israelis are going in and they want to basically, I won't say demolish the place, but I mean, there will be an aspect of demolition. They they want to go in and fight a battle with Hamas, who are basically dug in, buried deep underground and so on. And so they're logically probably going to have to flatten uh, at least part of Gaza. I, I think probably all of it, because I don't see any reason that Hamas will stay in one place and not in another. And so the current way that they're dealing with this situation, if you can call it that, 
is to say that we're targeting Gaza City in the north and all the people living in the north need to go down to the south. So we're talking, I think, at about a million people here. The UN is already saying you can't do this. It's already a cramped environment. And now you're reducing the space by, let's say, 50%. And you're doubling the population in the southern part, and so doubling the need for services and so on, which are notoriously bad in Gaza anyway. Everything from hospitals to running water already aren't very good. So these people are being dumped into the south, and and it's already creating a, a humanitarian crisis, according to the UN, which I can fully believe. I don't think that's some sort of pro-Palestinian propaganda or anything. And so at a certain point, this has to break. It has to break. And even in the current situation where they're pushing these people down from the north to the south, it has to break even given that. But I think the situation is going to get even worse because at a certain point, let's say that the Israeli army go into the north, they're going to realize that there are a bunch of fighters down the south, obviously. And they can come up and hit the army and then run back down south. So they're obviously eventually going to have to start moving into the south or going to have to start doing heavy air bombardments on the south and so on. And at that point, unless they actually want to really slaughter a bunch of people, which I really don't think they would do, and I even I think if they even they wanted to, they couldn't do because I mean the international outrage would be so enormous. At a certain point, these people are going to have to leave. We'll get into the kind of the numbers and the migratory dynamics and everything in a moment, but I'll just say I think the way it's looking right now, we're going to have a very chaotic leaving process because all the countries in the area are saying we don't want these people egypt have said it um the king of jordan has said it i mean there's no need to talk about syria and iran and so on they're actual enemies of israel of course they're not saying it but even the like somewhat friendly-ish countries like jordan and egypt are going no way i saw i saw in the financial times it was reported that a, an Egyptian diplomat said to an EU foreign official who then leaked it to the Financial Times, he said, if you put them here, we are sending them to Europe. So <laughs> there's no ambiguity here. So it feels to me like there's, obviously people probably know at this stage, there's a small crossing called the Rafa crossing in southern Gaza that connects it to Egypt. It's the only way out now because the Israelis have blocked all the exits on the side which borders Israel. And right now they're saying that you can cross the Rafa crossing into Egypt, but only if you have a foreign passport. Now, it seems to me obvious what's going to happen is as the situation gets more and more desperate, crowds will build up at the Rafa crossing. And unless something changes and, you know, uh, leaders come to an arrangement where these people are allowed to leave in a relatively orderly fashion, it's going to burst. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a stampede, headlines, everything. So the situation is a complete mess. I'd really highlight for people that this is a very, very different situation than we saw in previous Gaza wars, where I'm not saying that the humanitarian impact was being exaggerated in those wars. I think that would be too unfair. It was always played up in a sense by the pro-Palestine side. What is going on in the Gaza Strip now is a genuine catastrophe waiting for it to happen. And in fact, one that I think is much worse than, than the wars that drove the migration flows in 2015, 2016, which I'm sure we'll talk about momentarily. This is far worse. That's mainly the point that I was going to raise, that people remember the effect that the fall of Gaddafi had. And one of the reasons that was important was because it didn't just blow the uh, cork 
of Libya itself, but Libya was one of the key potential trade trade routes is the wrong word for this, although in some cases, sadly, it is the correct word. But one of the key migratory routes into Europe was through Libya, and Gaddafi had kept the cork firmly pushed into the bottle on that. When he went, so that cork went, and he had essentially a champagne effect where everything came up through Gaddafi. You also had a, about the same time the situation in the Levant in northern Syria and in Iraq as well. And once you saw this large flood of migrants across the Mediterranean and also through the Balkans into Europe, then that encouraged others to make the journey as well from sub-Saharan Africa, from the Hindu Kush, from all over the developing world, really. This, though, is going to be an order of magnitude worse, I suspect, because, first of all, the numbers are so great. As you said, in Gaza, there's some 2 million people. It might even be more. 50% of people who live in Gaza apparently are under 18 or under 16. They're children, okay? And that means that there are going to be some men and women mainly with very large families desperate to escape death, injury, bloodshed to get their families to safety. And once the the block on, on Rafa, that, that crossing breaks, then you're quite right to say it, it could be a flood. Once that happens, you know, you might have seven figures suddenly appear in Sinai, in Egypt, and the Egyptians feel that they don't want them there. And I think just to bring people back, one of the reasons that the the Arab nations, including Egypt, have traditionally refused to take Palestinian refugees is because they feel that if they started taking refugees, if that became an acceptable mode of conduct within the Middle East, that they would take on Palestinian refugees, then those refugees would ultimately become residents and Palestine itself would become ethnically cleansed de facto over time. And they want to avoid that. They're they're attempting to maintain the state of Palestine where Palestinians live. However, in addition, at the moment, Egypt is having in you know a very serious condition in terms of its economy. It's, a, it's essentially bankrupt. It would be extremely difficult to persuade Egyptian citizens who are struggling financially at the moment to take responsibility for the welfare of hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of Palestinians. And it seems given the pull factors toward Europe, which include gainful employment, the protection of the rule of law, a higher standard of living, and also, importantly, a large uh, Palestinian diaspora and actually a huge Muslim population, it would seem highly unlikely that these people would remain within the Middle East. And what's going to happen then? The political conversation surrounding migration has shifted significantly since the last wave, since the post-Libya, post-Syrian civil war wave of migration. Those in the Anglosphere might not realize, but in Europe as well, things really have shifted 
very significantly against further migration. In fact, in many ways, the EU nations and the EU itself is becoming more anti-migration than countries like Britain. And, And that might come as a shock to some people, but in terms of their actions and in terms of some of the legislation they're passing, that is simply the case. They're still struggling with migration issues across the Mediterranean and through the Balkans. But you can see the gears of the European Union's bureaucracy moving in an anti-migration direction. If they're suddenly faced with another potential flood of potentially a million people from Palestine, and of course, once they start moving more, we'll use that as a platform, as a jump ramp to get into Europe, then that discussion is going to heat up even more. One of the interesting situations surrounding that is going to be the response of the right. The you know the right in Europe and, and and certainly in Britain is very much against increased migration. That's not necessarily true of the right in government. We you know we've seen Georgia Maloney and also the Conservative Party in Britain preside over record levels of migration. But in terms of the rhetoric, certainly they're very anti-migration. They, at the same time, have been very much in favour. They've cheered on Israel's response to the the, the Hamas outrages uh, some 10 days ago. And it'll be interesting to see how they cope with the contradiction there, both cheering on a military solution, a kind of a punishment, a, a, a blow to Hamas that finally deals with the problem, and also the inevitable consequences of that, i.e. a great flood of migration, of, uh, uh, of desperate and also, sadly, radicalized and vehemently anti-Israeli refugees into Europe. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. I mean, we probably need to tread a little bit carefully here, but you were writing in unheard.com. You wrote an excellent, short, concise yeah, I mean, that's definitely already creeping through. I think that, as I said, the thinking through the migration issue is really only taking place literally as we speak. I'd say even when this podcast is out a few days after recording, people will have only begun the discussion. And it's a real discussion. It's a real problem. A lot of the people who are on the ride and, and don't want migrants, more migrants in Europe, and they certainly don't want another mass wave of migration like we saw in 2015, 2016 are also the people who are very sympathetic to the Israeli cause. And the reason that they're sympathetic is because they find Hamas to be a a horrible, terrible terrorist organization. Well, you know, I don't think it it takes a genius to figure out that if one to two million uh, Palestinians came to Europe uh, with an almost mythology behind them of their homeland just being destroyed, which is the way they'll see it, the potential for radicalization there is very strong. And I think we're not just talking about the type of radicalization that we've seen in Europe in the past. I'll be quite frank about it. Most terrorists that commit or people that commit terrorist acts in Europe aren't terribly organized. They're usually people who are radicalized online, alienated people. A lot of them are Muslims who drop away from the faith and start smoking weed and dealing drugs and stuff like that, and then come back to it and they want to be the most extreme and they tend to be quite isolated. They, I'm sure they're often influenced by outside groups, but they don't tend to have a very, how should I put it, military way of thinking. I think that military way of thinking might come with Palestinian refugees, actually. I think that will be a serious concern for the security services here. 
The other thing that I'd highlight is just because I've been discussing this in kind of real time with people over the past few days. And so I kind of know where I think I know where the debate is a little bit. It's very much only begun. A big thing that I'd really like to dispel is that some people come back and, and they hear this. They hear that this conflict is going to very likely drive these migratory waves. And they say, look, these are Arab people. They should be taken care of by the other Arab nations. And the first argument to that is usually moral. You know, if all these Arab nations say that they care so much about the Palestinians, why don't they take care of them? I think it's a very simple answer. The world isn't moral, especially state actors aren't moral. That's not the way the world works. The state actors in the Middle East that are in su- supporting the Palestinians at the moment view the situation very simply. They view the problem as being caused by Israel and the West. Now, whether that's true or not, it doesn't matter. That's how they view it. So if you try and make a moral argument to them that you should take a million, two million people because they're your brothers and you've been saying how much you love them, they'll turn around and they'll say, you've just destroyed their homeland, you've created this mess, you sorted out. That's what the Egyptians have said. That's what the Jordanians have said. That's what the Saudis said to Anthony Blinken after he apparently waited all night to get a meeting with them. The Arab world is really annoyed at what's going on. Again, right or wrong, it doesn't matter. The moral arguments are secondary to the pragmatic arguments here, I'm afraid. The second point of argument that often then comes up is we should force them. We should simply force them. We should say, Egypt, you have to do this. Jordan, you have to do this. Syria, you have to do this. I This, I just think some people just don't really understand how that region works in a way. Sometimes that region can be quite transactional, it's true. Sometimes you can go in and you can pay to play and you can say, we'll have an aid package here for something here. But again, I'll emphasize the fact the Arab region is really not happy about what's going on in Israel at the moment. Again, rightly or wrongly, you can judge it. It doesn't matter. That's how they feel about the situation. And coming in and saying, we'll give you an aid package or with Egypt, maybe you could say, we'll help prop up your economy in some way or something like that. I don't think it's going to fly. This is a a geopolitical issue that's been ongoing since 1947, 1948. Um, It's always been an irritant in the region. region. And I just cannot see any of those countries turning around and saying, no, we will help you with that issue, given the current circumstances. Beyond anything else, a lot of these countries are filled with people who are extremely sympathetic to the Palestinians. And if it was seen that their government was helping what they would see as the West turf the Palestinians out of their home, there'd be a revolt in the streets. I think that's right, Philip, actually. I think one of the things that people haven't quite grasped in the West is, first of all, how little how Western power over the Arab nations has waned over the last two years. We've spoken extensively on previous shows, and especially last week on our special Israel edition, that Western power in the Arabian Peninsula ain't what it was. (laughs) And it simply isn't. Uh, China is much more involved Saudis have uh, had a kind of rapprochement with the uh, Iranians. There's been a detente there. The Syrian civil war is over, uh, bar the shouting. Turkey has not joined in uh, with its NATO allies in sanctioning the Russians. Western power isn't what it was. Now, even if it, even if Western power was still strong within the region, which it's not, 
I think they would have an extremely difficult time on this subject getting any traction among Arab powers. And the reason is that there seems to be widespread and quite organic popular support for the Palestinian cause. I saw last week really quite serious protests in Jordan, which had to be put down by the government. I just saw some breaking news about calls in Turkey to march on the Israeli embassy and the Israelis telling Israeli nationals that they're not safe in Turkey anymore. Even if the Arab governments wanted to do something like taking Palestinian refugees, I'm not sure that it would fly given their domestic political situations. Obviously, these aren't democracies in the Western sense of the word, but they still have to take account of popular opinion on at least some subjects, and this seems to be the hottest of hot subjects. So the idea that they can just be forced in some way to tell the Western line on this, or if not tell the Western line fully, forced in some way to do the West's bidding, is, as you quite rightly said, for the fairies at this stage. I really, I just can't see it at all. I might be wrong, I might be proved wrong, but I don't think it looks that way at the moment. And that leaves a real issue because there there is going to be a genuine humanitarian crisis in Gaza and it's entirely possible that bursts out of Gaza and when it does, then there are going to be serious problems and that's going to be a problem that Europe is going to have to deal with at the same time that it's dealing with its issues with Ukraine. It's a serious issue. Yeah, so I think it's probably worth putting some numbers on this. Probably the best point of comparison is the 2015-2016 refugee crisis. I think most people understand what happened there. Most of us probably lived through it. If you're a little younger, maybe it's worth going and reading up on it. It was a pretty pretty bad crisis, changed the politics of Europe forever. So I think that's good. that's a pretty good point of comparison. So what happened basically in the 2015-2016 crisis, it started, I think you mentioned it earlier, with the overthrow of the Gaddafi uh, regime or government or whatever you want to call it, and instability in Libya, which basically gave a kind of a beachhead for refugees to come across. Obviously, there's been turmoil in the Middle East before. There's always turmoil in the Middle East. So it was really the destabilization of these borders that normalized these large-scale refugee flows. Once it was destabilized, the government in Libya was overthrown in 2011, part of the Arab Spring. That sent more ripples throughout the region, which eventually sparked off some conflict. Um, one of those conflicts was the Syrian civil war. The others were the an almost second Iraq war between ISIS and the Iraqi government. And there was also ISIS activity gave a kind of a, a, a bulge to the issues in Afghanistan. It was all related, of course. The Assad government in Syria was, I think, fighting ISIS as well. So it was that whole period. And what basically happened was the migrants, asylum seekers specifically from Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq increased a great deal. So I think uh, it depends what baseline you use, but using a fairly conservative baseline, uh, asylum seekers from Syria roughly tripled off a kind of a normal level, quote unquote, roughly doubled from Afghanistan. And it went pretty wild with Iraq. I think it, it increased by about four or five times. All of this gave rise to a an immigration situation where in 2015 and in 2016 you had just over a million asylum seekers come in. So I think it was one point it was around 1.2 million in 2015, and then another 1.1 million 
in 2016. Now, in order to compare the Palestinian numbers to that, we have to be careful on two fronts. So first of all, 1.2 million, say, in 2015 is misleading because there's always a baseline of asylum seekers. Call the baseline about 500,000. So really, you saw an increase of about 700,000 in 2015, and it was around the same as in 2016, around 700,000 extra than we usually see came along. The other issue that you have to deal with is what I call like taggers on or free riders, right? On the back of those increases in migrant flows from the war zone, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Other people who wanted to come to Europe just saw the migration trains go up and they said, this is a pretty good opportunity. Or perhaps they were in difficult circumstances of their own and they hadn't thought about it before. Um, And they jumped on the migrant flows. So not all of the 700,000 was just from those war zones. I think I ran the numbers on it and it was about for every two migrants coming from the war zones, 1.25 kind of jumped on the flows. So how does that really compare? The first thing to say is, We're talking about 700,000 a year for two years. So we're talking about 1.4 million extra migrants or asylum seekers coming to Europe. We've already said the Palestinian population in Gaza is 2.1. So even with the population in Gaza, assuming that if you assume the whole population leaves, or even if you're assuming that the vast majority of it leaves, which would be consistent with the Israel is going to flatten Gaza narrative, Yeah, you could totally see 1.4 million people over two years making their way up to Europe. That's before we consider the hangers-on effect or the free riders. I'll talk about that in a minute. The other issue is it's not altogether clear that it it, it will just be Gaza. Could something kick off in the West Bank? There's an extra 2.8 million Palestinians in the West Bank. Now, it would be a very different situation there. It would be more like, quote-unquote, normal war. It wouldn't be like this contained like water balloon like it is in Gaza that explodes with migrants or whatever. You could see a serious conflict take part in the West Bank and people flee like they did in Syria or in Iraq or anything else. So that's worth taking into account. When you go back to the kind of free rider problem or the fact that basically for every two migrants from the war zone, you get an extra 1.25, call it one, okay, for the sake of argument. At that point, if you assume, for example, that maybe 1.4 or 1.5 million of the people living in Gaza Strip come up to Europe, you probably have to add on about 50% there of people that they'll pick up in their trail. I'm just estimating it based on what happened in 2015, 2016. And of course, if that happened, you're up to about over 2 million migrants, probably. So you're looking at something worse than what happened in 2015, 2016. The last thing I'd say on the kind of numbers front is all of that just assumes a limited war, which is what's being talked about now, which is that it's limited to the Gaza Strip, or perhaps we haven't even put a number on what would happen if it spilled over into the West Bank, but those numbers I'm giving you are contained to the Gaza Strip. If it broadened out regionally, if Lebanon and Hezbollah got pulled in, if anything else happened... It could be even broader than that again. So I think what I take away from looking at the numbers is that we have to judge this on two layers almost. The conflict itself, how broad it ends up being, how much chaos it creates in the region, whether something like ISIS and anti-Israel ISIS comes up, something like that. And then on top of that, we have to say the Gaza situation is highly unique. And we've got 2.1 million people there crammed in, 
probably needing to get out. And that is a situation that you just do not, you did not have in the previous waves. So always keeping that in mind. I think all things told, if we continue going down this trajectory, I'd expect this to be worse than 2015, 2016. Ukraine and the desert. This gets us on to the next point, I suppose, which is how is this going, Philip? I've been following your Twitter, well, X, for the social media organization formerly known as Twitter. Uh, your feed on that has been superb in the last seven or 10 days uh, following this story. And I've gleaned far more from your posts and what you've retweeted and shared than I have from a lot of newspapers, actually. How is it going? Because I think it, it looks really serious and bad. And I'm Despite what you said about the Europeans starting to freak out and perhaps considering reigning in the Israelis, I, I see very little prospect of that. And I think we're getting a little bit overconfident here just because nothing's happened as yet, just because the whole region hasn't been drawn into some horror show conflagration. Uh, doesn't mean that's not going to happen. So how do you see things going? I mean, where are things? Where are things? So I think we we start with what is going to happen in Gaza. I think much is determined, but not all is determined by what happens in Gaza over the next few days or two weeks or whatever you want to call it. A few days ago before recording, it was supposedly quite clear what was going to happen in Gaza. And what was apparently going to happen in Gaza was there was going to be airstrikes in the north, quite severe airstrikes. There was um, even talk uh, about using bunker busters and so on, really flattening North Gaza and then sending in the Israeli defense forces on a ground invasion. Now, even when that was being talked about, there was a lot of nervousness. There was a lot of nervousness about using the Israeli army because it's a conscript army. And apparently it's, shall we be polite and say, more used to a policing role than a, an urban assault role. It is conscripts. I get a very strong sense that people do their couple of years in the Israeli army. I saw somebody comment, I think on Twitter or something, that for many Israelis, it's a, a chance to meet a member of the opposite sex, maybe. You go to the army, you, the girls are there, the boys are there, whatever. It's quite casual, by all accounts, more casual than... I'm sure it was easier than that in my day. <laughs> That's, there you go, you'd have to join the IDF. But the, So there was some nervousness about, about sending the army in, and now we've heard in the past couple, we've heard in the past day or two that they're not promising a land invasion. Now, make of that what you will, but it was around the same time as Biden visited. I think the pretty general read on Biden's visit is that he's there to cool the situation down rather than to heat it up how much he wants to cool it down, how much he's willing to, how much the Israelis are willing to allow we don't know. And there's no point in speculating about that. We may already know by the time the podcast comes out. So sticking to the actual Gaza situation, the, the fundamentals of it, it all depends on what happens there. But it seems to me it is binary in some sense. Either they go all in in some way, whether that means constant airstrikes, flatten the city, try and use bunker busters to root out Hamas, or it means, which I would think of as a more credible strategy, uh, bomb the city, send in the ground forces. I, I, I really think if they think that they're going to use techie Wunderwaffe to root out Hamas, I think they're in fantasy mode. I mean, just go and look at what happened in the ba Battle of Mariupol when the Ukrainians were dug deep under the, I think it was a steel factory. The Russians had a horrible hard time getting them out of there. And of course, Gaza is much, much bigger than what we were dealing with there. So I think it's either they back down or they don't, really. It's binary in that sense. If they send in and they go hell for leather into Gaza Strip, then it's going to generate what we talked about previously on the episode, a potential migrant crisis and so on. But we've already talked about that. The question is really, what happens next? 
And I think there's two schools, broad schools of thought right now on that. One of them is only developing. The first one is, I think, simpler, simpler to think through and more standard. It's a geopolitical or state actor framing of what happens. It's that Gaza occurs, whatever happens there happens, and then the region explodes. Hezbollah come in from the north, which seems almost certain. Iran have been making noises that there are red lines. One of the red lines is invasion of Gaza, etc., etc. They sent Hezbollah start off. Hezbollah have a lot of rockets, pretty big army. By all accounts, they're very well-trained seasoned fighters. They started off, and then gradually the region gets pulled in. Maybe Syria, maybe Iran, maybe Lebanon itself. And we have a big regional war on our hands. I think I called it on the last episode, Ukraine in the desert. And that's what it might develop into. The other school of thought, I think, I'm becoming more convinced of, and it's really only developing at the moment, is that Iran don't really have any intention of launching a war that they don't have to fight. That if Iran launched a war, they know it might pull the US in. They know there'd be airstrikes in Tehran, there'd be potential, as I said, US involvement, but even with the Israeli uh, Air Force, perfectly competent Air Force, there could be a lot of destruction. What they might do is, first of all, is obviously use Lebanon to strike the north and start a a two-front war, so a second war in the north, and then basically call for jihad. That Our friend Tinksorg on Twitter had a great thread today where he was saying there are all these fighters dotted all over the Middle East who've partaken in all the conflicts there. Some of them have been fighting for 20 years, fighting in Iraq, in various wars there, with ISIS, against ISIS, fighting in the Syrian civil war. All of these places, maybe even fighting in Afghanistan. Some of them might have even fought in Ukraine for either side. These are just professional fighters. It's what they've been doing all their life. It's a region full of these people. And as Tinkswerg says, if there was a big call for jihad, they might say, there's action over there. And then it looks to me like what would happen is there'd be effectively an insurgency situation. It would be very similar to the insurgency in Iraq. America go into Iraq, they eliminate the the state pretty easily because it's pretty flimsy. But the problem that they have is insurgents pouring in, many of them backed by Iran, just like they would be here infinite supply of arms, which can be picked up in Syria, in your local depot in Syria, in Iran, wherever you want. And so that actually seems actually quite credible. And that would be a, if that was the Iranian strategy or whatever, that or might not even be strategy, it might be Hamas's strategy. That would, uh, that would mean that there'd be this grinding insurgency either on the borders of Israel or within Israel itself, just grinding away. And what we know from those insurgencies is no matter how well trained your army is, no matter how advanced your air force is, insurgencies are just really difficult to to deal with. Yeah, I think that's you know one pretty negative potential outcome. Just to lay some of the groundwork here, I would say that people expecting Israel to have already started pushing their pushing the IDF into Gaza itself are perhaps a little bit off the mark here. I think the middle of last week. We saw very serious bombing campaign starts using bombs and rockets and all the rest of it, essentially demolishing any house that even remotely sniffed of Hamas, which it seems, given some of the photographs that I've seen, is pretty much every house in northern Gaza, but I'm sure some still remain. The other point is I recommend anybody who's remotely interested read type Adam II's chart book and 
uh, Gaza tunnel economy into Google and find the article that he wrote about the extent of the tunnels under Gaza and how essentially they have been essential for the Gaza economy. It's really quite phenomenal. The tunnels are so extensive into Egypt that you know the power generated by in Gaza is comes from diesel generators, essentially, in the main part. And that diesel comes entirely through tunnels, apparently. I think I read that right. It's absolutely phenomenal, the, the extent of the tunnels. Those tunnels will also, I am sure, contain significant stores of weaponry, military equipment, medical equipment, and all the rest of it. The Israelis will want to destroy a good portion of those tunnels to make sure things are easier, and they'll do that using penetrating weapons that can go between, I don't know, 30 and 150 feet even deep and, and, and then explode, or 30 and 50 meters, I, I think is what I read, and then explode. Or that might be feet. I might be confusing my feet and my meters here. Anyway, they penetrate the earth, and then once they've penetrated to actually quite a deep depth, they then explode. And we started seeing those. I, I, I think you – did you share with me on Twitter some videos of that, or was it somebody else I communicate with on this sort of thing? Shared with me by direct message on Twitter some some pictures of these penetrating weapons, so-called bunker busters, being used in Gaza, and it was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. There was no actual explosions. There was just these, like – Water spouts essentially coming up through what I assume are, are drainage grates and things like that. But instead of water, it's smoke from subterranean explosions. It's really quite astonishing to look at. The Israelis are now doing that. I assume in the meantime, they're also kitting out their army and preparing them for serious urban warfare. Not something that is necessary for them to do. You know, the Israeli, you know, when was the Israeli army, when was the last time the Israeli army? Had to clear a city. This is, as we've discussed in previous episodes, the most difficult mode of warfare. It's something that's going to need extensive planning, actually probably some training as well, I would have thought, given Israel is majority a conscript army. Uh, you don't want to just hurl conscripts into this sort of thing, otherwise it'll be a bloodbath. Even if you've done significant battlefield shaping in the form of a withering aerial campaign, and also equipping as well. The US have been already shipping uh, serious amounts of arms and missiles of various types, and I guess artillery shells to replace those artillery shells that were removed to send to Ukraine, right? Like they removed them from US stores that were there for emergency situations right before an emergency took place, which is great work and great thinking. So they'll have to come back as well because artillery despite what people say, will be important for any ground campaign, including urban warfare. Look at the Battle of Fallujah. There was extensive artillery used in the Battle of Fallujah during the uh, Iraq War, and it will be necessary again here. So I think we're still in the preparatory phase here. I think people who are saying that Israel is getting cold feet about any war, you know, a land invasion, they might be. But there's no signs of it as yet. The other thing I'm getting is I've got a few friends who've got family and, and, uh, and friends in Israel, and they are telling me the atmosphere there is cold fury. There is no uh, popular desire to cool things off. Uh, people are genuinely angry, and understandably so, given 
what happened. Netanyahu seems to be on the brink. This is all very combustible, Philip. Uh, I see no sign that Israel is going to be reined in. The Europeans might be freaking out, but they've got exactly zero leverage here. I mean, what leverage do they have over the Arab countries upon whom uh, Europe is absolutely reliant for energy these days, given it's cut off its main supply, Russia? What leverage do they have over the Americans who are very gung-ho in favor of Israel, given they are also reliant on the Americans for energy and also security? given they have emptied, literally in some case emptied, their entire defense stores to send to Ukraine. I see <laughs> very little leverage that the Europeans have over either the Arabs, the Israelis, or the Americans. I see little sign that it's going to be politically easy for President Biden to go to Israel and tell him to cool their heels. I see Netanyahu is probably desperate to get some kind of win out of this because politically he looks uh, on the edge. Anybody who's read... Seymour Hersh's latest substack will understand exactly what I mean. Yeah, it, it just doesn't look good to me. I, the, the fact that Israel hasn't sent its conscript army into Gaza yet is no sign that this is cooling off at all. And I do worry about you know what's going to happen when they do go into Gaza because you know by the time people listen to this recording on Thursday, civilian deaths might well have topped five thousand, which is more than half of the entire civilian deaths in the Ukraine war in 19 months. That's the severity and intensity and brutality of what's going on at the moment. And I see very little way that this ends particularly well for for Gaza, for Israel, for uh, Europe, in fact. So sorry to be so pessimistic, but that's the way I see it. Yeah, I think the most, the safest assumption currently is that Nothing has changed that much, and this is probably go ahead. I'll put one curveball out before we leave this alone because I haven't seen it discussed, and I don't think it has been discussed, but I think it could actually play a very large role, maybe not in preventing what's going to happen from happening, but certainly in the future. The Democrat Party base, we alluded to it on the previous episode, is actually very pro-Palestine. The left wing of the party has been nurtured promoted to positions of moral leadership and so on since the first Obama administration. And I think everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say they hold pretty much the moral saber, as it were, in the Democratic Party. They're very pro-Palestine. And uh, Joe Biden is going into a pretty tight election next year, or whoever the Democratic Party uh, candidate is. It doesn't really matter in this circumstance. They are going into a tight election next year. And if their base is screaming that there's ethnic cleansing going on in Israel that the administration is supporting, which they will say, I guarantee it, they will not. I don't get the sense that the Democratic Party base can be controlled on the Palestinian issue. They are very passionate about it. And so I think that's going to be an enormous, enormously difficult issue for the Democrats. I don't think they fully understand that yet. But I think, and I, so I don't think it m maybe is quite playing into the dynamics that are taking place now. But I just highlighted it as something that our listeners should watch moving forward because no one else is talking about it. The Golden Tusk. The right of centre or, or, or right wing law and justice party in Poland, which had previously formed the government there, has lost the election. Or, more to the point, they were the largest party in terms of the share of the vote. But because of the proportional representation system in Poland, they are unable to form a coalition. 
the centrist, liberal and left of centre parties together have a majority and there is no route for law and justice to form a government, essentially. So law and justice managed about a little over 35% of the vote, so the government of Poland. The Civic Coalition Party, led by arch-Europhile and European darling Donald Tusk, managed 30% or 31% of the vote, a little bit short of 31% of the vote. And the kind of centre-right third way uh, was at 14% of the vote, with the uh, left-wing party at 8.6% of the vote. So essentially what this means is a kind of a sea change in the Polish outlook. Mr. Tusk, of course, is very much in favour of the European Union. If people remember back to the the Brexit campaign, Donald Tusk said that there would be a special place in hell for Brexiteers for leaving the European Union. He, he viewed it as immoral, in fact, that a country might consider leaving the European Union. And of course, in the last 10 years or so, since the Law and Justice Party has been in control, they have been somewhat less enamoured with the European project than Donald Tusk. They've had running battles with the European Union about the way that they have arranged the the, the courts and uh, judiciary in Poland in terms of some of their social policies, such as abortion and LGBTQ plus rights. And this has led to the European Union withholding some of the post-COVID recovery money that Poland, in theory, is due to until Poland solves this issue. Mr. Tusk has said that he will bring Poland back under the jurisdiction of the EU ACWIS, which is the collection of EU foundational laws, essentially. Um, He will also beef up women's and LGBTQ plus rights, and he'll generally be a much better European, a, a, a kind of a gently progressive liberal, I suppose we could say. So yeah, this is pretty big news, and it, it you know it could lead to a, a sea change in Poland's outlook. Well, I always like to say in these situations, in these multi-party democracies, with no very strong two parties in Europe, of which I come from one, Just because somebody loses an election doesn't mean anyone won an election. And that's true here. What you see in a lot of these European countries that lose um, a strong two-party system is that they either revert to a relatively strong one-party system, which is what Poland had until now, or they slip into governmental chaos in a sense, and they split into these factions, lots of independent candidates and so on. And I don't really think this signals a a functioning democracy. I never have. I grew up watching it happen to Ireland. At a certain point, it waters down the process so much that you don't really know what your vote's going to because it's not a clear party. It's not a unified party and they can't clearly get anything done. But as you alluded to, it's very good for external powers that have influence over the country like the EU because if there's no one governing domestically, then the government tends to come from elsewhere. And the fact that Tusk has been elected to this position certainly suggests that the EU is now uh, gaining a foothold or control over Poland. Now, why did it happen? Well, I mean, I think the answer is pretty straightforward. The economy is not doing well. Uh, This is the case all over Europe. Um, There are almost no European leaders that were in power before the war in Ukraine 
and the inflation and the energy prices and everything like that that remain popular. The war wiped them out. It cleaned the board in a sense. And those leaders that are still in power because there hasn't been an election held, like Olaf Scholz in Germany, everyone knows they're not going to survive. No, no one survived the economic problems here. And in Poland, it's been quite bad. In a way, Poland's not much worse than the rest of the continent. It's in a technical recession, so it's had two quarters of negative annual growth, but its unemployment rate is still low. So it's in this kind of limbo state, this zombie economy where everyone still has a job, but living standards are falling and the economy isn't growing. But the real issue that has hurt Poland far more than other countries has been the inflation rate. Now, part of this is, most of this is just due to the fact Poland is a middle-income country. It's not a rich country. It does control its own interest rate as well, which can bring further complications. But the inflation rate in Europe only really touched double digits at its at its worst. In Poland, the inflation rate hit almost 18%. Now, it's come down since then, as it has across Europe, but it's currently still hovering at about 8%. And when you look at the trade statistics, you also see a, a fall in living standards, as it were. If you look in, on, on, on its face, Poland's balance of trade has improved a great deal over the past year or so. And you think, okay, great, they're, they're becoming more competitive. No, not really. What's exports have actually fallen, but imports have just fallen more. And when you see a large decline in imports, it's a very good sign that living standards are falling in the country. And of course, they're falling in the country due to the inflation. So I think it's a pretty straightforward, it's the economy stupid argument for why they lost the election. The other problem is, I think, that voters in Europe aren't stupid, and they know that there's a connection between the war and the economy. They know that the inflation is coming from the energy prices, and that the energy prices are coming from the war. I think most people are, are cognizant of that, certainly in Europe, I'm not, maybe not so much in the UK, but certainly in Europe. And, and then you can say, maybe law and justice thought that because the war was so popular in Poland, because Poland is very anti-Russian, as is well known, because of their experiences with Russia in the past, maybe because, because of that specific circumstance that they are willing to take the pain a little bit more than other countries. But that hasn't really been the case. A recent poll showed that 55% of Poles believe that the country should not offer any more help to Ukraine. And only 28% of people thought that support should be continued. The share of respondents who said a, a very positive approach to Ukrainians, who, who said they had a very positive approach to Ukrainians, had dropped from 44% in January of this year to 28% in May and June. Some of that's driven by the economy. They're thinking, I'm getting poor, why are we giving that guy money? But some of it's also due to the fact that an awful lot of Ukrainians have migrated into Poland. And the Polish government, law and justice, were very famous for having a restrictionist immigration policy, which was very popular in Poland. But because of the war, they skated over that and they let loads of Ukrainians in. And of course, although they're on the border, they're not as dissimilar, perhaps culturally or whatever, as migrants from other parts of the world. There's actually not a great history between Poland and Ukraine, if you know it. There's actually some enmity there. So I think all that's combined and uh, it's led to the result. But I, I really would read the result as less a win for Tusk and his rainbow coalition, which has more colors than the actual rainbow, and more so the case of a kind of a, a democracy that still had uh, a capacity to vote in a single uh, um, power, uh, a, a single party that had a clear vision to one that's turning into this morass that we see all over Europe and this um, fragmentation of democracy that we see all over Europe. 
I'm actually not sure that a spell out of power won't help the Law and Justice Party in this sense. I'm not a great expert on Polish politics, but as you rightly say, there's been a quite serious downturn in Polish living standards. The general trend for Poland has been quite impressively upward over the last 20 years. It seems to have been, generally speaking, a pretty well-run economy. But in recent years, there's been quite a few issues. Whatever one thinks about the Law and Justices Party's ban on things like abortion, for example, that did create really huge protests in the cities, at least. And that's the sort of issue that kind of stays with voters, as we've seen in the US to a certain degree. And then, of course, the Ukraine war hit, as you've quite correctly said, which has led to inflation and falling living standards and uh, job losses across Europe, but especially in those countries closest to uh, Russia and most reliant on Russian trade, the Baltic nations primarily, but also Poland and Hungary as well. And obviously that's going to be connected. I think you also said that uh, law and justice had us because of the anti-Russian sentiment in Poland, Russophobia, perhaps we could call it, I don't know then, you know, Polish people would put up with that. But it's been clear in kind of recent months that's just not flying because of the the extent of the support being handed to refugees, the grain import situation, which was huge, the inflation, the cost of the support, both economically and in terms of weapons. There were even TikTok trends, you know, that were pretty against (laughs) suggesting that the population was pretty against uh, continuing support for Ukraine. And it seems to me that law and justice changed tack on that a little bit too late for it to have any effect. They cut off relations with Ukraine, cut off weapons transfers, unilaterally banned grain imports, cut off off certain benefits from Ukrainian refugees, and it was a little bit too late. I think ultimately you're quite right. It's an it's-the-economy-stupid situation. But what about the future? It's quite clear that Tusk is going to be a much better European. As I said earlier, he's going to bring Poland back under the kind of jurisdiction of EU law. He'll probably change things in terms of the minority rights, shall we call them quite broadly, perhaps in terms of migration as well, and taking Poland's share of migrants. But that in itself, it, it seems to me that the whole zero migration policy was pretty popular in Poland, irrespective of who's in government, how will he be able to get that through? Furthermore, the economy is still going to struggle in coming years until Europe gets cheap gas back. And that essentially means pipeline gas from Russia, because even if they can secure enough LNG for the foreseeable, LNG is 40 to 50% more expensive, and it's much much more volatile in terms of its prices, as we saw with the fact that one strike in Australia saw a sudden spike in LNG prices globally. You know, the economy is still going to be bad. And, you know, the other point with regard to EU integration, with Poland, it can't really go too far because of the Eurozone. Poland is not part of the Eurozone. They still have, as you you know, mentioned earlier, they still have the Zloty. The, they still have their own currency. And as I was reading in Wolfgang Munchau's website, Eurointelligence, just the other day, one of the points he made is that those countries that are not part of the Eurozone simply tend not to be as integrated because, of course, you know, having a single currency is a really important thing and it tends to lead to much greater political 
uh, integration by necessity. And those with their own currencies have, uh, you know, their own problems because they're not part of the Eurozone, but they also have their own freedoms and their own room for maneuver. So I'm not altogether certain, you know, how much Tusk can change. There'll probably be a few banner changes, but I'm not sure how much he can change. And the other point, of course, is that although I think he'll want to get, you know, move more, move back under Germany's wing, move back under the EU wing, the U.S. really has an interest in keeping its own power in Poland. Now, the, you know, the Law and Justice Party was very Atlanticist in terms of its outlook. And it was very pro-American and had very tight uh, links with America, as much as any nation in Europe. And, and, and I include Britain in that, actually. Now, if at some stage the European Union moves towards some kind of detente with Russia, perhaps they start slowly reinitializing trade or slowly reducing sanctions. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but if, then I think certainly the US would at least want to maintain Poland as a very close ally, as a bulwark against that. So again, in the long term and strategically, the economy is still going to be difficult. Migration as an issue is still going to be an issue in Poland. They're still not going to be a member of the Eurozone anytime soon. The US is still going to want Poland as a close ally. So I'm not 100% certain with how much is going to change in the future, although, of course, there will be some things. And I'm certain that's going to be a great deal, especially when you've got that coalition-building process. A lot of our Anglo-Saxon listeners might not understand how that works, but Tusk is going to have to jettison some of his policy plans and ideas as are the coalition partners. And the government that we get will govern on a platform that is different to the manifesto promises of any of the individual parties. That's simply how coalition building in Europe works. I think it remains to be seen how apocal this process actually will be. I'd just add to that very quickly. You only touched on it, but maybe you didn't give it its its, its relative weight. If there is a migration crisis over the Gaza problem and Tusk reigns over the country in such a way that he lets in migrants as any other country would, you can't really undo that. So I think that will be an enormous shift. And given the fact that we're staring down the two things at the same time, it might be one worth paying attention to. Multipolarity. Do do.